Well, thank you very much, Ken, for the, the opportunity to join this very interesting conference and to talk about a subject that is of much interest to me. Um, I appreciate being here. I was here once before for to participate in the conference that led to one of the books that's on the book table, the one about the, uh, the conversation between reasons to believe and, and biologos. <clears throat> now, the Scopes trial itself is not something on which I particularly have any particular expertise. It, my expertise all comes from reading other people's works about this, especially <clears throat> the, works, uh, the work by Edward Larson, um, uh, Summer, it's called Summer for the Gods, right? Summer for the Gods, which won the Pulitzer Prize back in the 1990s for uh, the history of the Scopes trial. I strongly recommend Larson's work to you. Um, what I do have more background on myself as a scholar is the all that part of the 1925. What's the larger picture here? So the Scopes trial is the tip of the iceberg. What, what else was going on in American religious history at that point and, and other parts of American history at that point that led to the trial and resulted from the trial? We're, we're closely intersecting with the trial. So the all that is what I'm going to be focusing on today. But we do need to say a little bit about the trial to set the stage. The photograph you're looking at um, shows the two famous people who got, became involved with the trial before it began, but not before the whole episode started, insofar as John Scopes was charged with teaching evolution in violation of a new Tennessee law in May of 1925, and the trial took place a month or two later, and that's when these two men were on the scene. Neither one was there at the start. They both went in there partly on their own initiative um, and made themselves available to the opposite sides. On our left, we see Clarence Darrow, who was, um, in Ed Larson's opinion, he's expressed this to me in private conversation, not in the book, by far the greatest trial lawyer of the 20th century in America, um, Clarence Darrow, on our left. Um, he, I asked him about this uh, during the trial of O.J. Simpson, as to how, how any of these attorneys associated with the Simpson case would have compared with Darrow. He basically didn't think they'd be capable of being, being his water boy. Um, that, that uh, Darrow was such a great trial lawyer. Um, but he was also famous for being an agnostic, a kind of public agnostic, who liked to debate Christians about the Bible in public settings. Um, and so he's a religious skeptic. He considered himself an agnostic, though many regarded him as an atheist because of his aggression against religion, but his own opinion of himself was that he was an agnostic. But politically, he and Brian were in very similar places. They were both very liberal Democrats, and they both opposed, for example, American entry into the Great War, what we call World War I today. In fact, the machinations that Woodrow Wilson went through leading up to American involvement led William Jennings Bryan, his Secretary of State, to resign over what he regarded as some duplicity in that. Um, that's an interesting tale that I'm not going to be telling here. I just want to point out that that's the case. And in fact, during, uh, it was in the year of 1918, during the war, um, there was a book called The Present War as Viewed by Friends of Peace, published by the Committee on Public Information, that was a set of pacifist tracts. And one of them was by William Jennings Bryan, and another was by Clarence Darrow. So 
they, they were very much on the same page on their political side. In fact, in 1896, when William Jennings Bryan on our right ran for president for the first time and was the youngest candidate in American history, which will still be true this year, no matter who the Democrats nominate, he was 36 years old, one year older than the constitutional minimum, when he ran against William McKinley. Then he ran again in 1900 and again in 1908. Um, so, What's the last time you could name a three-time unsuccessful major party candidate for president of the United States? You can think about that one. Um, but Brian was very popular with the ordinary person. He was a populist as well as a progressive. That's the term he used. The term, of course, has come back and used today in our own political discourse. And his views are very similar to another progressive whom we'll see shortly uh, on one of the slides. Now. Darrow, as a trial lawyer, was very famous for taking highly controversial cases, especially, for a while at least, especially involving labor leaders and labor strife, which was common at that time in American history, um, sometimes lethal violence. Um, in one of his more famous cases, he took a murder trial in 1911 involving two union leaders who were accused of blowing up the Los Angeles Times building. And he later lost some of his reputation with labor when the defendants confessed their guilt after Darrow had professed their innocence. Um, but his most famous case in the 20s was probably this one. He defended two arrogant young men who had recently graduated from the University of Chicago named Leopold and Loeb. And they had tried to commit what they regarded as the perfect crime to show how smart they were, that they, were, they viewed themselves as Nietzschean supermen, ubermensch, and they believed they could outsmart the authorities, so they kidnapped a 14-year-old boy who was a, a cousin of one of the two. They persuaded him to get into their car, and then one of them sitting in the back seat bludgeoned him to death with a chisel, and then they buried his body, and they thought they would get away with it, but they didn't. Darrow defended them, hoping to get them off of the death penalty, and in that he was successful. He persuaded the judge that a kind of psychological determinism had made them not totally responsible for what they had done. And so this is the image Darrow has. That took place in 1924, one year before the Scopes trial. Now on the other side, we had William Jennings Bryan, who was, as I've mentioned, the youngest presidential candidate in American history. And he had gotten that nomination in 1896 at a time when there, there were brokered conventions, as we all know, because he gave a, a very moving nomination, well, a moving speech that led to him being nominated. And in that speech, he was an advocate of what they called bimetallism. Um, the way things were done then, uh, the individual banks could issue paper money um, not the there was no Federal Reserve and there were no paper federal money at that time. And they based this on the gold holdings that they had. And gold as a precious metal was the basis for the banks doing this. There was not yet any official federal gold standard. That would come a little later. But England had the gold standard. Bryan felt that put too much power in the hands of too few. And he wanted large national banks 
that could expand the money supply by using silver in addition to gold to back the money supply and thus make it easier for small town people and farmers to borrow money and to pay off their debts. And so he advocated that and he gave a speech about bimetallism in which he said, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold as one of his as his really the final part of the speech. And you can see he's standing up there with his arms outraised as if crucified um, when he's saying this. And this moved the conventioners so much that he got the nomination. He was regarded as one of the great political orators of his generation, even though his opponents sometimes compared him to the River Platte in Nebraska, which is where he was from. They like to say that like the River Platte, Brian was wide at the mouth and shallow. <laughs> but his platforms were really liberal by the standards of the day, and some would say even by our own standards today. Let me simply, to speak to that, I want to quote someone who really knows something about this in detail, and that's his biographer, one of his biographers, Lawrence Levine. Um, Lawrence Levine wrote this. Uh, about Brian and his, his, and his political views as a matter of summary at one point in his book. And he puts it this way. Speaking about Brian in his final 10 years when he gets involved with the Scopes trial and similar causes. He said, to represent the latter-day Brian as a reactionary, pure and simple, is not only to oversimplify the complexities of the entire progressive era, but also to do violence to the facts during the very years when Brian stood before religious gatherings denouncing evolution, he also went before political rallies to plead for, for um, progressive labor legislation, liberal tax laws, government aid to farmers, public ownership of railroads, telegraph, and telephones, federal development of water resources, minimum wages for labor, minimum prices for agriculture, maximum profits for middlemen, and government guarantee of bank deposits. These are some of the things he supported in the, in, in the economic realm. He also supported Philippine independence and the direct election of United States senators, which is not provided for in the Constitution without being amended, and women's suffrage, causes such as these. So these are the things with which he was associated, and people, people who loved him loved him. Like Bernie Sanders, like Donald Trump, he had a movement behind him. And he, has been, he was even compared four years ago in the run-up to the previous national election. Another one of his biographers, Michael Kazin of Georgetown University, compared Brian with Bernie Sanders and said there are indeed a number of points of comparison that in, in many ways they were similar candidates. And in some ways, of course, they weren't as well, being separated by a hundred years and more. Now, Brian had long been opposed to biological evolution. The Scopes trial happened in 1925, and it resulted from a crusade Brian led beginning in the early 1920s to pass laws prohibiting the teaching of evolution at state-funded educational institutions public schools, and public universities. That's what he aimed to achieve, and in Tennessee, he got what he wanted. But his opposition to evolution was long-standing. 
long before he got involved as a political campaigner against it, trying to persuade legislatures to do anything, he did not find evolution at all acceptable personally. So let me read something to you that he wrote in 1904 in a book he entitled The Prince of Peace, a book about Jesus. And here's how he put it. The Darwinian theory represents man as reaching his present perfection by the operation of the law of hate. The merciless law by which the strong crowd out and kill off the weak. If this is our law of development, then if there is any logic that can bind the human mind, we shall turn backward toward the beast in proportion as we substitute the law of love. I prefer to believe that love rather than hatred is the law of development. Now, what he meant by the law of hate was, indeed, natural selection, which was described at that point as often in terms of a phrase that Darwin himself borrowed from British social philosopher Herbert Spencer, namely, the survival of the fittest. You don't find that phrase in the first edition of The Origin, but you find it in subsequent editions. Darwin took it from Herbert Spencer because he thought it was an accurate description of his theory in the biological realm. Darwin did not advocate applying this in the human realm to the same degree that some people today say he did, but others certainly did. Now, interestingly, just a couple years later, Brian wrote a letter to sociologist E.A. Ross at the University of Wisconsin. E.A. Ross is, to the best of my knowledge, the first person to use the term social Darwinism. And it was used for the first time right around then. In Brian's letter, speaking of the Darwinian theory, he said, such a conception of man's origin would weaken the cause of democracy and strengthen class pride and the power of wealth. So you can see again where he's coming from. He has political objections to evolution and to it being taught. And he continued to believe these things. He never changed his mind about these things the rest of his life. But he still did not make it the subject of a national crusade until after the Great War. So what was it then that seems to have motivated Brian really to get moving after World War I on stopping the teaching of evolution in American schools? Well, this book, probably more than anything else, it's not very big as you can see, Headquarters Nights. This book was written by a leading American biologist who was an evolutionist. His name was Vernon Kellogg. He was a professor at Stanford. Kellogg was a pacifist, and during the Great War, before the United States became a combatant nation, Kellogg's former student, a young man named, an engineer named Herbert Hoover, who was a Quaker, went to Europe, to Belgium and France, and supervised efforts to bring humanitarian aid to the civilian populations. Kellogg went and joined him there. Now, Kellogg, like many other American scientists of his generation, got their doctoral work done in Germany. Germany is the place where the PhD degree was invented, in fact, in the early 19th century in Berlin. Kellogg got his German degree. He was fluent in German. And while he was in Belgium and France, he was, he was billeted in a house 
that was being used by the German high command in those regions. And he had conversations on a regular basis with German officers, some of whom had been university faculty before the war. In this book, Headquarters Nights, which describes these conversations, Kellogg sets up a composite character whom he calls Professor von Flussen. And here's how he describes some of those conversations. Professor von Flussen is neo-Darwinian, as are most German biologists and natural philosophers. The creed of the Olmacht, he uses the German word for omnipotence here in the English book, the creed of the Olmacht of a natural selection based on violent and competitive struggle is the gospel of the German intellectuals, and all else is illusion and anathema. This struggle not only must go on, for that is the natural law, but it should go on so that this natural law may work out in its cruel, inevitable way the salvation of the human species. That human group, which is in the most advanced evolutionary stage, should win in the struggle for existence. He thinks that, it's, it's, that the struggle must go on, it's inevitable, and Darwinian evolution justifies it. Now, Kellogg here is describing a view that personally horrified him. This caused him to question his own pacifism. He didn't think you could just argue people out of this position. He says, to do that, it takes the muscles of Samson, he says. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a position also that deeply troubled Brian. And the perception that this was happening had happened in Germany, that Darwinism in the universities had led to the view of German military dominance. Remember, this is World War I, not World War II. Adolf Hitler is simply a corporal in the army at this point. But it is this, this view deeply troubled Brian, and he didn't want similar kinds of things happening in the United States. This also troubled some other biologists, kind of I should sort of mention in passing here. Um, I heard this morning, um, just this morning, that the first, um, how was it, the first evolution course at Wake? Right, was taught in 1925, and it was just in a building adjacent here. Well, the first required course on evolution in the United States at a, at a college was taught at Dartmouth College right around the end of the, of the World War, and it was taught by William Patton, a leading American biologist. At the time, he wrote an essay in the Scientific Monthly called Why I Teach Evolution, explaining to people what he wanted to accomplish. And what he wanted to accomplish, above all, was to distance the teaching of evolution from the kind of rhetoric that had, borrowed, that had bothered so much Kellogg and Bryant. Um, there were other American scientists at the time who also perceived this, that this, this was a problem here and something had to be done to distance evolution from those views. So the, Kellogg and Bryant were not the only ones who perceived a problem at the time. But now, of course, in the wake of World War I, anti-German feeling ran very high in the United States. In the public high school I attended, from which I graduated a few years after the end of the Cretaceous period, you find that they taught German in my high school until World War I, and they never resumed afterward. So I was not able to take German in high school, at my public high school. And a lot of people in my part of the country, up in Pennsylvania, have German heritage, and many of them changed their family names from things like Müller and Schmidt to things like Miller and Smith as a result of some of this happening, as many of you will know. 
Now, the anti-German feeling in the United States is seen right when Bryan launches his anti-evolution campaign in the winter of 1922. You see him here depicted in this cartoon from the next summer, a cartoon drawn by the great Christian cartoonist E.J. Pace. I won't say more about him. You could ask me after if you want. But here is Brian shown as the hero of Verdun. Verdun, of course, being the one of the tremendous battles of World War I in which the French, multiple French armies, held off multiple German armies. We're talking about millions of combatants here like many of those battles were. And the French battle cry of they shall not pass is being held up by Brian. His supporters, many hundred thousand strong, are behind him on the, behind the ramparts. He's defending the integrity of the word of God. And the enemies of the Bible, implicitly German, are outside. <clears throat> Interesting, implicitly German. Well, why German? Well, they're German, of course, because that's where higher biblical criticism had come from. And that's also where forms of evolutionary theory were resonating from in Brian's day, especially the, probably the leading science popularizer of his generation, a little earlier than this, Ernst Haeckel, uh, a German biologist who wrote books on like the natural history of everything, this sort of thing, um, and in which he connected evolution with everything. Here is a cartoon, another one by Pace, a colorized version of it that was shown in Sunday school lessons in churches. These things were often sold in colorized, pastel colorized glass lantern slides. If you don't know what a glass lantern slide is, ask me afterward. But it's the great great granddaddy of what's projecting this. And here you have made in Germany, the submarine of modern higher criticism is sneaking up on the Bible in a sea of unbelief. And it's labeled the Judas II, as you can see. So you get the picture, literally, in this case. So these are the currents. It was evolution and higher biblical criticism that most troubled conservative Christians in Brian's day, and I believe still do today, uh, in terms of academic subjects. One more example of this. Here you have a preacher in Boston whose sermon is being quoted in the lower left there. I don't expect you to be able to read that where you are, but it's about how Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. <clears throat> And this particular preacher, who's had a labeled an evangelical pulpit, has been gassed by the Germans. And there's German rationalism poisoning him here. So this type of anti-German feeling and the connections it has with these theological and scientific matters is part of the discourse in the period around World War I, and it influences how Brian is seen. Now, the bill in Tennessee was passed in the spring of 1925. Wasn't the first effort to get a bill there, but it resulted from a national effort by Bryan to use his political connections to get opportunities to speak before state legislatures to persuade them to remove public funding for the teaching of evolution in public schools. Private schools could do whatever they want. This wasn't an effort to control free speech, even though it was seen that way by the ACLU, and that's why the Scopes trial happened. It was an effort to prohibit people from doing what taxpayers didn't want, from teaching religiously dangerous ideas that Brian believed were also politically dangerous, as I've already illustrated, from teaching those ideas in a setting that was supposed to be neutral to such things in public schools. That was the point. And the bill in Tennessee, which I'm quoting here, prohibited any teacher to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible 
That's one interesting phrase, isn't it? Today, that would immediately run into constitutional problems. But the, the rulings from the Supreme Court about the so-called Jeffersonian wall of separation between church and state hadn't happened yet. Those are post-World War II. And, then, and to teach instead that man had descended from a lower order of animal. So that's what's prohibited. You can say whatever you want about the other animals. You can say whatever you want about the age of the earth or other such topics. You just can't teach that humans evolved from other animals instead of being created by God. That's what you can't say in Tennessee. Here's Brian sitting with the author of that bill, George Butler, a Tennessee legislature, le legislator, in a staged photo at the time of the Scopes trial. Now, privately, as far as the age of the earth is concerned and evolution other than humans is concerned, Brian was okay with either. He said in one of his letters to someone that he was willing to accept evolution for animals other than humans. He didn't want to go there publicly because it would appear to add to the case for human evolution. But he had zero problem with an old earth and long biblical days. In fact, in the, in the courtroom testimony, when he goes on the stand, he actually takes the stand and Darrow Cross examines him as an authority on the Bible at one point. Brian admits this is the case. Now, actually, there's nothing unusual about Brian's views as a conservative Protestant at that point and that. Um, in fact, Brian's views are pretty much identical with those of one of the leading American geologists of the 19th century, you whom you see on the left, James Dwight Dana of Yale. Dana was the author of the most widely used geology textbook after the Civil War called the Manual of Geology. I'll be quoting from it in a moment to show you where he was coming from. And or on the right, Reuben Torrey, biblical scholar Reuben Torrey, who was the third and final editor of a set of publications known as the Fundamentals that I will mention again in a moment and give you more background on. But Torrey was also the dean of the faculty at the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which today is known as Biola University. And Torrey was a leading fundamentalist. He identified in those terms. And here he was. And he himself also was convinced that the earth is enormously old. And there were creatures on the earth long before humans were ever here. That was the common view at the time among all fundamentalist leaders. As you will see, I'll defend that shortly. Now, what about Dana? Dana, in fact, I should have mentioned also that, that, that Tory, Reuben Torrey, studied at Yale for his undergrad degree. Brian didn't, but Torrey did. And he attended the lectures of James Dwight Dana. Dana always maintained a creationist view of human origins. Even in the final edition of his widely used geology textbook called Manual of Geology, he said this. The 1894 is the final edition of it. As you can see, he says, you can't explain where we came from, from science. And then in a, in a, a little later, he says this, the search for missing links. That's an interesting use of that term. That's an older term. I think it comes from Charles Lyell. The search for missing links has been carried forward with deep interest during recent years. Whatever the results of further search, we may feel assured in accordance with here he refers to Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer of evolution by natural selection. He says, in accordance with Wallace, that the intervention of a power above nature was at the basis of man's development. The intervention of a power above nature. This is how you talked about special creation in science textbooks in the 19th century. That's how you talked about it. That's, what, that's exactly what Dana means. He means what you think he means. 
So this is the view of, of a leading American geologist, the sort of dean of American geologists in many ways. Um, James Dwight Dana, that's Brian's view. Reuben Torrey has a similar view. Now, if you're skeptical of my claim that conservative Protestant authors did not have a problem with an old earth in the 1920s, the original fundamentalists didn't have a problem with it, let me, let me defend it a little more. Here you see William Bell Riley. He was the first president of something called the World Christian Fundamentals Association. In that capacity, he was the person who urged Brian to go to Tennessee, to go to Dayton and help in the Scopes trial. And he was in a debate with an atheist in Arkansas in the context of which there was an Ar Arkansas was considering an anti-evolution law. And he went down and debated this atheist and the atheist um, made the claim that Christians are all stupid because they believe the, the world is 6,000 years old. And Riley's reply is, he said, not so. He said, I cannot identify a single, these are his words now, a single intelligent fundamentalist who claims that the earth was made 6,000 years ago. And the Bible never taught any such thing. Riley's own position was a day-age view, which is the same thing that Brian held. He debated famously Harry Rimmer and the other leading science person of the time from the fundamentalists, he would go on and become very famous in America, remember was a gap theory person. Those are the two views that were taught in the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the most widely used version of the Bible among fundamentalists and charismatics in both England and the United States in this period. It expressly teaches the gap view of creation in the original form down in here. Modern Schofield, I think, does not do this, but the original Schofield did that, and it also allows for the day-age view in the footnotes. And if you've ever had a Schofield Bible, you know what I mean by in the footnotes. I won't take that further here, but you could ask me about it later if you like. So, my point. Brian's viewpoints, Brian's opposition was to human evolution. And human evolution solely. It was not to other issues that today are often packaged with it. Now, the textbook used in Tennessee and had been used for a long time, is this, A Civic Biology by George William Hunter. Now, civic biology was, as the book suggests here, it says, a civic biology presented in problems is the subtitle. These problems had pertained to applications of it, especially social political applications of evolution that we now call eugenics. Well, that were called at the time even, eugenics. I am not going to do a sidebar on eugenics here. I haven't time this morning to do that, and I'm not a great expert on it either, but this book is full of it. It's also full of scientific racism. I'm going to illustrate the latter by a quotation from the book under the heading, The Races of Man, and here's what it taught. At the present time, there exist upon the earth five races or varieties of man each very different from the other in instincts, social customs, and to an extent, in structure. These are the Ethiopian or Negro race, originating in Africa, the Malay or Brown race from the islands of the Pacific, the American Indian, the Mongolian or Yellow race, including the natives of China, Japan, and the Eskimos, and finally, the highest type of all, the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. That doesn't really need any further comment from me, except to say that 
Brian himself never took issue with any of this in, 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 at the Scopes trial, with these aspects of, of Hunter's book. He also didn't raise objections about eugenics, although he strongly opposed that. He didn't make that an issue at trial. But he himself, Brian himself, at that point in his life was living in Florida. He'd made a small fortune in real estate speculation. He had never spoke out against Jim Crow laws, and in fact, he probably agreed with everything in this, in this paragraph. So that's, that's just a little context on what it is. People often today misrepresent evolution in some of these issues and how things have gone in the past. Now, what about the fundamentals? Well, the fundamentals were a set of 90 articles in 12 paper-bound books that were sent very, very widely in the U.S. to pastors, Sunday school teachers, and others in Protestant churches. They were sent for free. They were paid for by California oil money. Um, and they, they, um, they defended traditional Christian faith against very liberal Protestants who had begun to think of themselves as modernists. The term modernist as a religious term precedes in usage the term fundamentalist. The word fundamentalist itself was not coined until a few years after these fundamentals were published. This is the set of publications that Ruben Torrey was the final editor for. This is it. Okay? And in 1920 is the first print use of the word fundamentalist anywhere in the world. And it's used in the context of American Protestants, especially Baptists. Indeed, this is from the Baptist newspaper, The Watchman Examiner. The editor of the paper was a clergyman named Curtis Laws. He used the term to describe himself and like-minded individuals. You can see the quotation I've pulled out here. He has just been to a Baptist convention. He's been talking with like-minded persons about what to do about liberal drift in the denomination. And he says this. He says, we suggest, of course, using the regal we, right? We suggest that those who still cling to the great fundamentals and who mean to do battle royal for the fundamentals, shall be called fundamentalists. By that name, he then speaks of himself in the third person. By that name, the editor of the Watchman Examiner is willing to be called. It will be understood, therefore, when he uses the word, it will be in compliment and not in disparagement. Interestingly, this kind of implies some verbal usage at this point, and people might have been using it disparagingly already. That would happen increasingly about the decade Brian himself, as far as I know, never identified himself as a fundamentalist. He never did. Um, as a whole now, the fundamentals did not go after strong evolution very strongly. There's a couple of articles that do, out of the 90. Others defend forms of evolution, and even Reuben Torrey was okay with some forms of evolution. This anti-evolution part would come later as part of the conservative Protestant agenda after the Great War. At the time, the authors of the fundamentals were more concerned about defending the infallibility of the Bible and the authenticity of miracle stories and such issues. And Brian, as I said, himself didn't identify as a fundamentalist, but he shared the fundamentalist disdain for modernism. And so he, was, he made a will, more than willing ally in the cause against evolution. I'm, I'm going to skip that one for time, and I'm going to go to this. At the time, in the 1920s, when the Scopes trial happens, 
fundamentalists see themselves involved in a culture war. And you can see that in this cartoon from the magazine of Biola, The King's Business, from a couple years after the Scopes trial. You can see for yourself how the Bible is depicted as the rock of Gibraltar, which is going to withstand this assault. But the assault is terrific. It's a terrific but futile bombardment. And the forces of modernity are arranged in front of the Bible. Culture, which I think is a reference to things like Broadway shows. Liberal theology. Those are Protestant theologians who don't believe in the divinity of Jesus, the virgin birth, or the bodily resurrection. And modern thought. Science. That does, I think that doesn't mean evolution, actually. I'll come back to that. Hypothesis. That means evolution. And atheism. What did science mean in this context? I think it meant this. It meant the fact that science was already being used as a weapon against traditional Christianity in culture wars. And this is partly derivative from a work by Andrew Dixon White that I'll tell you about in a moment. But this particular cartoon from the turn of the century shows the forces of modernity arrayed on the left behind a Gatling gun under the flag, Think or Be Damned, and the barrels on the gun say history, archaeology, evolution, enlightenment, and geology. There's five labels on the barrel of the Gatling gun. And the ammunition boxes are labeled rational religion, historical facts. And I'm scientific facts. I was having a trouble reading the one that was aimed sideways. Scientific facts. On the right, illuminated by the light of reason, presumably, otherwise they'd be in darkness, you see the forces of traditional belief coming out of their castle under the flag, believe or be damned. Okay? Believe or be damned. And this is called medieval dogmatism, is the flag there. Dogmatism was a bad word in the late 19th century. It's something that, at that time, scientists couldn't be dogmatic in the way the word is used. You don't usually find it used that way. But religious people can be, the way the word is used. And medieval, of course, is a, is a pejorative adjective at the time. People thought of the medieval period as a dark age of backwardness and obscurantism. And so here you have the forces of modernity against the forces of ignorance, superstition, and tradition that they're battling against. That's the picture painted by this book, which had been published just three years earlier. This two-volume work by the first president of Cornell, Andrew Dixon White, who was himself an historian, in fact, the first president of the American Historical Association, ironically. And yet, he wrote one of, in, in writing this work that he believed to be an accurate history of a 2,000-year history, 1,900-year history at that point, a history of conflict between theology, theology, Christian theology, not religion, Christian theology and science. He had unwittingly written one of the great works of fiction of the late 19th century. But that's another story. I don't have time to go down that rabbit hole today. As for Brian and his friends, what really bothered them most about evolution can be illustrated in a series of cartoon images from the period. Another one of Pace's cartoons, you see the Darwinian hypothesis of evolution. It's almost always labeled this way as the Darwinian hypothesis of evolution. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. And you can see in this case that it's falling out. It's full of hot air, of course. 
and it's falling out of clouds of speculation, heading toward a collision with the hard facts. That's what's about to occur. And notice the, notice the label on the gondola of the balloon. Many of you recognize that language, don't you? Science falsely so-called. Where does that come from? comes from Paul's first letter to Timothy, right? That's where it comes from. Interesting, this biblical phrase comes in here. Well, let's go back 100 years to the early 19th century, to the early 1800s, first decade of the 1800s. You're looking here at Samuel Miller, who was a very prominent Presbyterian pastor in New York, who became the second professor at Princeton Theological Seminary when it opened in the decade after this after the one I'm talking about. In 1803, he published a brief retrospect of the 18th century in which he referred to the 18th century as the century of infidelity. He referred to it as the century of infidelity. And in that century of infidelity, he said, he said, one finds in every age profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. In this case, he directly applied that language of science falsely so-called to early versions of natural history, pre-Lyellian, pre-Darwinian versions of Earth history, which had a long period before humans arrived. And he found that highly objectionable, and he referred to this as false science. Now, Brian had no problem with geology at all and with the ancient, an ancient Earth, no problem at all. But in the, in the 20th century, this language gets transferred over by Brian's people into evolution. But there's been this long history of using that biblical phrase against certain parts of science. Now, this cartoon is from the UK, not from the United States, but it and from the 1930s, not the 20s, but it does illustrate currents of thought that were transatlantic on the part of conservative Protestants. And here you have the sacred pillar of evolution standing on a big pile of hypotheses, a big pile, as you can see an ape man at the top. Why be an ape is what this book is called. Brian said this in his stump speech that he went around the country giving, trying to persuade people to pass these anti-evolution laws. He said that the word hypothesis is a synonym used by scientists for the word guess. Sorry, I've got a missing initial quote, quote, quote there. That's a, whole, that's a quotation from Brian all the way. It's a Synonym for the word guess. And evolution, he said in his last statement at Dayton that he read to the reporters after the trial, he said, evolution is not truth. It is merely an hypothesis. It is millions of guesses strung together. So there you go. This is, this is very widely shared in Brian's day and still today among many tens of millions of Americans probably still agree with Brian about this. Now as far as education is concerned, here's how Brian perceives this threat. Remember the Pied Piper story about how he clears the rats out of town and they don't pay him. So what's he do next? He pipes the children down into the river and drowns them. Okay? Maybe you read an expurgated version of the story. <laughs> you know, people are worried about, at one time we were worried about the violence in children's cartoons. They need to go a little further back. But here you, you know, putting, putting grandmothers in ovens and things like that. Now, here you have science falsely so-called. Note, note, note the left thigh of the, of the piper. Science falsely so-called. We don't want to mistake this for real science. And he's piping the Darwinian hypothesis of evolution. And American school children are being piped down the path of education with the rats, 
headed toward a skull-shaped cave, disbelief in God or the Bible. This is deadly for them. This is deadly. This is about their eternal life. And they're dead once they're taught evolution. Likewise, this co-ed who has to exchange her faith for her diploma, and her diploma is nothing but science falsely so-called. And Pace has cleverly drawn this such that that is a pistol aimed at her head, as you can see. And the allusion to highway robbery in the lower left. So this is how it was seen by Brian and his friends. But above all, religiously, this is how evolution is seen. This is the most crucial image you will see this morning. Brian himself designed this cartoon. It was printed as the frontispiece to a book he, he published in 1924, a collection of articles from the Sunday School Times that he had written. I'll skip that, those details on that and cut to the chase here. Pace drew the cartoon. And Brian says, the cartoon I have in mind, he says, would have three men descending a staircase, a staircase on which there is no stopping place, i.e. a slippery slope. And it would depict, he said, what evolution means. Namely, evolution is, he said, the cause of modernism and of the progressive elimination of the vital truths of the Bible. So Brian blamed evolution for religious modernism. And here's what it was going to do. And since it's, since it's a slippery slope, this is inevitable. What's going to happen is the student at the top of the staircase, stepping from Bible not inerrant, not infallible, to man not made in God's image. This is all, I'm just quoting Brian here at this point. I've given this lecture often enough that I can do that without reading him out. But this is all quoting from Brian. Halfway down the staircase, he says, is a preacher, a minister with a Bible in his hand, Stepping from no deity, meaning no deity of Jesus, to no atonement. And at the bottom of the staircase, a scientist stepping from agnosticism to atheism. And you can see how Pace has used shadow and light effectively. And the minister is even clasping hands with the darkness halfway down the staircase. So this is what evolution means for Brian. It means this. This inevitable descent, total loss of religious faith, ending in atheism. That's how Brian sees it. And this is the descent of the modernists. As for theistic evolution, as you would think, he did not have a high view of this. And, and that's a term that has been in use since at least the 1870s. And here you see how theistic evolution is splitting faith in the Bible. And Brian said this about it. Theistic evolution is an anesthetic which deadens the pain while the patient's faith Religion is being gradually removed. Or, as he put it, and think of the previous cart cartoon about the staircase here, it is a way station on the highway that leads from Christian faith to no God land. Okay? That's his view. Doesn't leave a lot of maneuvering ground here. Now, Brian's anti-evolution crusade went upscale in February of 1922 when his editorial called God and Evolution was published in the Sunday New York Times. Over the next month or two, the Times elicited responses from three New York area modernists, prominent liberal Christians in the New York area. Here's who they were. One was Henry Fairfield Osborne. He was the um, curator of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, the great dinosaur museum in Manhattan. He was also a professor at Princeton, 
a eugenicist, and a scientific racist. The second person to respond was Edwin Grant Conklin, a developmental biologist at Princeton, who, as you'll see, went on to become one of the leading public intellectuals in the country. He was also a eugenicist and scientific racist. And the third respondent, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the Manhattan pastor, who supported eugenics in a limited way, but as far as I can tell, was not a scientific racist, but he was the most famous liberal preacher of his generation, as many of you know. The replies by Conklin and Fosdick, two of them, were reprinted six months later as shirt pocket size religious tracts. That big, okay? Like you'd find in a tract rack in the churches when I grew up. You'd find little tracts in the back of a church. They were a series devoted to science and religion, edited by Shaler Matthews, who was, the, who was the devil incarnate, as far as many fundamentalists were concerned. He was the dean of the very liberal divinity school at the University of Chicago. His whole religious journey is described aptly by the title of his autobiography. He wanted a new faith for old. Indeed, he was essentially, effectively, a Unitarian on a good day. Um, he, it's, it's not clear entirely to me that Matthews even believed in God as more than a social construction. Once he was asked by the famous Nobel physicist Robert Millikan, his friend, whether he believed in God, and Millikan reports that Matthews' answer was, that, sir, requires an education rather than an answer. And so that's who Matthews was, very suave, sophisticated theologian at the University of Chicago. When, even though he was theoretically a Baptist at a Baptist divinity school, he was buried in a Unitarian churchyard. I think that says a lot about who Matthews was. And so Matthews wrote one himself of those pamphlets. And another one was by Conklin. It was that New York op-ed piece. Conklin here on the cover of Time magazine in the 30s. Here's something Conklin went around the country preaching about in the 1920s. The religion of science. Interesting, right? He used that term. You can see from these notes of his, the religion of science is very different from the religion of tradition and revelation. It's got no personal God, no miracles, no supernatural revelation, no personal immortality, no ghosts, witches, demons, no blood atonement, no propitiation of an angry God, no objective efficacy of prayer. I don't know what the ninth negative was. This is the author of one of those pamphlets. This is the type of religion that's being tied with support for evolution in the 1920s. As for Fosdick, many of you know who he was. In the opinion of Martin Luther King Jr., who was no mean preacher himself, Harry Emerson Fosdick was the greatest preacher he'd ever heard. He was the pastor of two churches in Manhattan that got him into trouble. One was a Baptist church, one was a Presbyterian church. He got thrown out of both. So his parishioner, John David Rockefeller Jr., built him his own church on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Riverside Church, near Columbia. Fosdick had been shaken by Andrew Dixon White's History of the Warfare book, incidentally. I can tell you about that afterward. If you're curious about that connection, ask me to expand on that. I won't today. These tracts were put in churches, in track racks, they were used as university-required meetings at many universities, including Penn, Princeton, Minnesota, Dartmouth, places like that. And they were sent to tens of thousands of Protestant ministers in North America, including, as well, 
every public high school principal in the United States. At least that was the intent. They tried to do that. I don't know if they got them all, but they tried to do that. They distributed them very, very widely in the years leading up to the Scopes trial. Rockefeller and his foundation had a lot to do with paying for them. I'll skip that, and I'll skip Schmucker here. I'm going to move on to the last part. So, I want to ask questions, larger questions about this episode. What, you've seen the polarization here from the 1920s. We live in a polarized age ourselves. I don't know if, it was any, if, if we're any worse off than we were then. What about today? Well, the confrontational attitude of the fundamentalists is certainly still seen in contemporary young earth creationism. And those folks are even more conservative than Bryant. Because for them, the issue of the Earth's age is huge. This version of Ken Ham's famous Battling Castles cartoon of humanism versus Christianity, the original versions from the 1980s in his book, The Lie, Evolution, show evolution, parentheses, Satan as the foundation, and Christianity, parentheses, Christ. This version and current versions have are similar to this, have millions of years equals man as authority versus six days equals God as authority. So the young earth issue per se is seen as central to the church and directly related to causing all of these social evils, every one of which I would note, by the way, long predates evolution in a, historically. But the modernists are also still present, and some of them are even more radical than the modernists of the 20s, perhaps. Um, and I would include, for example, in that list, John Shelby Spong, retired bishop of Newark in the Episcopalian Church. I'm w wondering sometimes, isn't there a biblical text that says, can any good thing come out of Newark? But here you have, here you have Spong and his, his, his ser a series of books on how Christians have to move beyond theism, beyond theism, beyond belief in God, in order really to be fully in tune with modernity and have a moral conversation with modernity. You know, I don't, I don't recognize Christianity anywhere in there, but he seems to. And so there is Spong. But in addition to, those, to that kind of polarization, though, you do actually have something that wasn't there in the 1920s. And so this is where I'm wrapping things up. I'm going to show you a few things today, a few examples of, of, of a phenomenon that I was not able to find in the 1920s when doing my research on that period, namely leading American scientists and theologians, leading American scientists and theologians who are very vocal about their belief in both evolution and the apostles and Nicene creeds, and I mean without crossing their fingers. You don't find that in the 1920s. The individuals in that category are not leading public voices. The most famous of them all, you've never heard of him, was Henry Higgins Lane. But you never heard of him, right? That's what I thought. Okay, and so here you have a person many of you recognize, Francis Collins. He's already been discussed yesterday. John Polkinghorn was mentioned yesterday. I agree, by the way, with Mike Murray's critical comment about his, his view of theodicy with regard to nature having freedom. I don't find that coherent. But this is a wonderful commentary on the Nicene Creed the faith of a physicist. And Polkinghorne is a world-class particle physicist who fully accepts evolution, um, among other parts of science, but he's also an orthodox small-o Christian in so very many ways. Owen Gingrich, the Harvard historian and astronomer whose recent series of books, God's Universe, God's Planet, 
hopefully another one yet to come, although he's now about 90, that these books would indeed present traditional theistic views, traditional Christian views on the universe and God. Or finally, Robert John Russell, the head of the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences at Berkeley, who is an, a traditional Orthodox small-o Christian, in my opinion, and he defends doctrines such as creatio ex nihilo, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, a future life to come in an embodied form with the Lord, uh, these kinds of things, and his book, Cosmology from Alpha to Omega. So, for many American Christians, the ideas of people like those I've just shown you are hardly any more acceptable than those of someone like Richard Dawkins. They might as well be atheists, in the opinion of many American Christians, because they don't identify exactly with their view of Christianity. But at the same time, I think they represent a significant new feature on the historical landscape. These world-class scientists and theologians who accept evolution, but who also affirm classical Christian doctrines like the incarnation and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I'm not majoring on the minors here, right? Um, and no one like them contributed to public conversation in the 20s. No one of eminence in these fields contributed to the public conversation that I can find. And this by itself may have contributed to the polarization seen then. So my last question, will people like these have a permanent effect on the American religious conversation about these issues among evangelical Protestants, among others? Will their attitudes and ideas be accepted over time? Well, you know, I'm in the wrong game if you want me to make predictions. I'm a historian. I'm not a prophet. I don't know how this is going to play out. But in my opinion as an historian, not everything is the same as it was in the 1920s, and that might prove to be significant.